You want to talk about breaking the rules? How about doing a month-end mailbag on every final Wednesday of every month for more than three years, every final Wednesday, every month, until not. Last Wednesday, just a few days ago, no mailbag. No mailbag? No way, no mailbag. We have to do a mailbag, and so here we are, a weekend extra. So thanks for breaking the rules with us by spending a little RBI time on Saturday or Sunday on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Motley Fool Rule Breakers. That's right, if you're ready to learn how to take control of your financial future, then you just might be ready for Motley Fool Rule Breakers. Our average Rule Breaker stock recommendation has returned 159% versus the stock market's 71%, and that's over picks made for 15 years. Are you ready to be a Rule Breaker? Well, join us, joinrb.fool.com. That's the special URL just for my podcast listeners, joinrb.fool.com. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. All right, welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing, our first ever weekend mailbag. Our unbroken streak of a mailbag every month will not end. Yep, we're taping this on Thursday afternoon, August 29th. It'll come out, well, it'll publish Saturday morning here in the United States. That's the last day of August, 8-31. So, yep, this is the August 2019 mailbag, and I'm David Gardner, the host, and I'm delighted that you're spending a little bit of time this weekend with me, with us, with my producer, Rick Engdahl, and my assistant, Melena Butler, who assembles all of your mailbag postings and enables me to read through them and figure out what's going to make the cut, and it's always hard to do the cut. After all, we get a few dozen pages or entries of things that I read through and takes from Twitter, and I have to figure out what's going to be the best thing to speak to this month. There is some redundancy, as you might imagine, some recurring investment questions of different types that pop up and resurface from time to time. I'm sure we'll be doing a little bit of that this weekend, but always fresh, always another human voice from somewhere around the world talking about investing and business and life. Now, this, of course, is August. It still is, I think. And that means it was authors in August. And what a delight it was to feature four different books with the people connected to them. And I won't go back over that list, but I will encourage you, if you're interested in finding a great new book, something to enjoy in the fall, if you didn't already read enough at the beach this summer, I highly recommend any of the four last podcasts that I've just done here on Rule Breaker Investing. Each one motley coming from a different angle, whether we're talking about asking more beautiful questions or what is the nature of true heroism or why does everybody seem to be moving to the city and what are those implications? Or just last week, just this week, in fact, having those crucial conversations and how to do that well in life. Well, I'd like to start with a couple of hot takes from Twitter. So here we go. At Irv underscore Wash, but I think your name's Steve Brodeur. Steve, you said when you were talking about people from Crete this week, that's of course the book Natural Born Heroes. When I talked to Chris McDougall earlier this month, Steve wrote, when you were talking about people from Crete, you know, he said Cretans. Steve said, I heard Cretans. That gives a different perspective to the discussion. And Steve, I really do appreciate this important distinction because you're right. Quick informal definition of the word Cretan, spelled C R E T I N, probably used more frequently, at least around the United States of America these days, than Cretan. Cretan is a pejorative term for an idiot. So I do apologize that I did not refer to the people of the beautiful Greek island of Crete, which I myself have spent time on in the past. I should have called you all Cretans. And Steve Brodeur's helping me. I don't think that you're Cretans, and I apologize to my listener base, especially in Greece. And how about one more hot take? This one from Brent Larmore at Brent underscore Larmore on Twitter. Hi, David and team. I enjoyed your podcast on China. Thank you. I've been there a number of times, have a degree in Asian studies specializing in Chinese history. I should mention before I go on, Brent is reacting to a late podcast in July entitled A Rule Breaker in China when I shared my own impressions of China 
both as an investor and a fellow liver of life, and uh, shared those out. I think I had nine of them, and Brent just wanted to add to my list, because, again, he said he has a degree in Asian studies. He specialized in Chinese history. So, thank you for this, Brent. You said, to add your list of nine, you got three. One, China is quickly turning into a cashless society, as WeChat and Alipay are used to pay for everything. Two, my partner used facial recognition to get water from a vending machine. No money, no credit card, just her face at a vending machine. And number three, you can use Google, Facebook, and others in China if you get a VPN before you go. And I should mention, Brent, we did discover that, certainly. I was able to Google things from mainland China, but that one has to go to such lengths to use some of the most useful and common everyday sites in the world today in one of the world's great countries was indeed disappointing. But you're right. Those virtual private networks, often you might have a corporate VPN. That's the way that you or I traveling in mainland China can, in fact, use Google. Brent concludes, I lived in Japan for 10 years. I'd highly recommend going there. Thanks for the good work on the podcast. Well, thank you, Brent. Now, as usual, I do have a few guest stars that will be joining me for this mailbag. It's always an opportunity for me to share it out, have fun with some of my friends around the fool. And one of them is Emily Flippin. And Emily will be here in a little while. We're going to talk some more China coming up in just a little while. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number one. This one's from Michael Armstrong. Michael, thank you. You say, I'm a grateful rule breakers and stock advisor investor for the past two and a half years, and it's been a good two and a half years. You go on to say, I'm confused about the services sell disciplines. I'd understood that generally, quotes, never was the desired sell discipline, yet recently sell recommendations have been issued for a few of the companies on the Rule Breaker scorecard, one example would be Ambarella, Stericycle. These companies seem to have viable businesses, so why sell them? Thanks, Michael Armstrong. Well, let me say, first of all, that you're right. We don't sell too often. And I think for most new members to Stock Advisor or Rule Breakers or really The Motley Fool, we have new people showing up at Fool.com every day. It's a growing business. It's a very exciting time for our company. A lot of people expect us to sell more. They hear things like buy low, sell high. They figure as soon as you buy something, the first thing you need to know is when you'd sell it and have a target price. And a lot of people, in our experience, think you need to trade far more frequently than we think you will benefit. And so it's a common reaction from most people to think, why don't you sell enough? And I'm going to speak to that in a sec. But Michael, you're talking about somebody who you're bought into this idea that we don't sell very often, and you're seeing some recent recommendations that were sold. Well, let me speak to that, and then we'll get to my favorite phrase and the real highlight of this mailbag item. That's the phrase, sell discipline. But first, taking a look at a few of the companies you mentioned, just picking one, um, Stericycle, which is basically a hospital disposables company. It's the company that keeps hospitals clean by enabling them successfully to dispose of all the things that hospitals need to do on a regular basis. It's a long-time, long-standing company of good vintage and pretty large. And yet, after nine years of holding it at Motley Fool Rule Breakers, we decided earlier this year, I think it was the spring, since it was basically back within pennies of where we'd bought it nine years ago, that it wasn't going to be a successful investment. It certainly hadn't been. The stock market, you might have noticed, is up over the last nine years. Stericycle was not. It's kind of a larger, slower-moving company. just didn't fit with our hopes over the next five-plus years. So that's one example uh, but to broaden it from there, often we're selling stocks if we just don't think it's going to beat the market over the next five plus years. So even though we tend to be very patient, and I'm often the last guy out of a bad stock in particular, one of my many failings, even though that's true of us, we're always asking the question first, do we like this company, what it's doing, and will this beat the market over the next five plus years? And if we can't say yes to that, then we're going to sell something. Again, most of the stocks that we've picked over the 15 years that Motley Fool Rule Breakers has been running are still active in the portfolio. And many of those that were sold were actually buyouts, like another company bought the stock out. So we had to sell our shares. But then again, there are also a lot of stocks that didn't do very well. We tend to just sell those losers and get rid of them, although we're holding them multiple years on the way down in many cases. So please understand that about our style, but the winning numbers I shared earlier in this podcast, or if you look at the Stock Advisor scorecard, you're going to see that we're beating the market by a substantial margin, even holding losers 
for multiple years. I think that's an important lesson on its own. But back to the real highlight here, which is the phrase sell discipline. Now, this is one of my pet peeves. I I had fun with this. I remember saying something on this podcast about the phrase sell discipline, and I decided to go back to our annals. And in fact, here's a public service. Transcripts.fool.com has the transcripts of many of our podcasts over the months and years. And so I was able just to kind of search and find when I spoke to that phrase, sell discipline, and it was the July 2016 mailbag. So what that means is just about three years and one month ago today, I spoke exactly these words. I'm always humored by the phrase, sell discipline. Some people will say, what's your sell discipline? And I always love that because no one ever asks, what's your buy discipline? I think for some reason, in a lot of people's minds, selling is more important than buying. And darn it, you should have a you should have discipline around knowing when to sell. But as I am a motley fool and often favor the contrary approach, and I like to invert things, I think your buy discipline, whatever that is, is far more important than when to sell. So the only way you're really going to make a lot of money in the stock market is not by really knowing when to sell. I think it's by knowing what, specifically what to buy. Not even so much when to buy, but what to buy. The only way you're going to have um, 10 baggers is to actually pick the stocks that do go up 10 times in value, whether you manage to hold on to them all the way through or not. So uh, a quick word then about knowing when to buy or specifically what to buy. And if I were to express it in simple mathematical terms, what to buy greater than symbol when to sell. All right, now back to the present day. I will mention back on that podcast, if anybody wants to tap back to that July 2016 mailbag, I go on to list three conditions in which we will sell and do sell our sell discipline, if you will. But I think I just spoke to one of them to answer your question, Michael, which is, you know, stocks that are just, we don't see the prospects going forward that excite us and make us confident that this company could beat the market. That's that's a really important one. All right, Rule Breaker Mailbag item number two. This is from Nathan Purdom. David, I've listened since the very first RBI podcast and have enjoyed every episode. Oh my gosh, we need to play the sound effect whenever anybody announces they've heard all 216 plus Rule Breaker Investing podcasts. Rick. All right. So thank you, Nathan. I'm an avid learner, he goes on. Although I have my comfort zone topics, this podcast has expanded my mind into wonderful new areas. And you mentioned board games, you mentioned conscious capitalism, other things that many of us love. So thank you. You go on. One thing I've struggled with in my still early days of investing is how to think about the impact of private companies as competitors to the public firms I'm interested in investing in often at the suggestion of the Motley Fool. Rarely do I hear or read analysis about a a public company that considers private competitors, unless it's a unicorn like Airbnb, Nathan asserts. Does the Motley Fool consider private firms in its analysis? He concludes, I'm curious because I work for a large private company that participates in many industries that many Fool recommendations are a part of as well, so I can't help but think about the private side. Thanks, Fool on Nathan Purdom. Thank you, Nathan. Well, let's keep this short and sweet. Absolutely, we look at the private companies. We look at the industries before we're going to recommend a public company to invest in as a stock for rule breakers or stock advisor. We look at the industry in which it plays. And you're right. Channels like CNBC will naturally probably tend to focus on public companies. They're batting around stocks and there's that that line of ticker symbols rushing by with prices and a lot of the focus of financial journalism, it seems to me, is on the public companies that you and I can invest in as stocks. But as investors who do research into the companies before we recommend them, we want to know who's winning, who's doing well in each industry. And sometimes, this comes from a private company ourselves, sometimes the private companies are worth paying attention to. I would say the majority of big-time industries these days, the biggest players are public. So often the private ones are more the upstarts or more the ones that might IPO in the year 2020, for example, those initial public offerings. We've seen a spate of them here in 2019. But I think it always makes sense to pay full attention to the biggest, fullest picture you can see. Rule breaker, mailbag item number three. Wait, number three, Emily Flippin, you're here. I am. Welcome to Rule Breaker Investing. It's great to have you back. Great to be here again. So a couple of 
mailbag items I wanted to share with you. One of them is more focused on China than the other, but they're both kind of China-oriented. And so, Emily, since you spent your four years undergrad there, and we've talked some about Chinese stocks, and you do a lot through our different podcasts, and it's a delight to have you with us this week, I thought we should talk about these. It's a welcome break from talking about cannabis companies. So okay, looking yes. forward to it. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> the many-faceted Emily Flippin. <laughs> All right. So, Emily, this one comes from Graham Case, writing from Indianapolis, Indiana. He starts, David, I really enjoy Rule Breaker Investing as well as the other full podcasts. What a brilliant staff you have. Graham says, I've listened to enough episodes that I actually have come to appreciate certain pairings. Chris Hill and Bill Barker crack me up. I will say that they do me as well. That's probably my favorite podcast to listen to are when they're both on. So thank you, Graham. Uh, I love how J-Mo's such a fan of his companies like McCormick's. And when he talks fintech with Matt Frankel, I could go on. Everyone there is great. He goes on then. He could go on. Ooh. And here we go, Emily. This brings me to Emily Flippin. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I imagine it could be somewhat intimidating to be on a podcast with her. This is really wonderful is because she really is, nice. get this, get this. She is brilliant, self-assured, and strongly opinionated. Do you agree with those characterizations of yourself? I agree, but he makes them sound so positive. <laughs> and in reality, having to say live with someone like me, it gets a little exhausting. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, now, of course, sometimes in notes like this, somebody will say something nice and there will be a little bit of mm. buttering up. And then there's going to be a but. But so we will see. We'll listen carefully for that potential turn in Graham's phrasing. So again, this brings me to Emily Flip, and I imagine it could be somewhat intimidating to be on a podcast with her because she's brilliant, self-assured, and strongly opinionated. I really enjoyed when she ripped apart the Lowe's, that's the Home Depot competitor, Lowe's turnaround strategy a couple weeks back. Listen carefully to this. However, okay, there we go. I think we've the wind has it. just changed. <laughs> However, I've recently found myself wanting to argue back at my listening device and take part in the conversation. Well, before we go on, Graham, that's what we want everybody to do. I hope anybody listening to this podcast or any other, I hope we're having a dialogue together. You can probably hear me a little bit better than I can hear you, but I can hear you. And that's why we have a mailbag on this podcast, which I love doing every month. So she has repeatedly stated that she is annoyed by companies using weakness in China as an excuse. Graham goes on. However, I disagree with the assumption that just because Starbucks is doing well, which it always seems to be doing well in China, just because they're doing well, he says, a company like Align technology is just making excuses. It's unfair to compare a company selling a $5 cup of coffee to a company selling $5,000 teeth aligners. After all, even if it was overpriced, the coffee isn't going to make a dent in anyone's net worth. Now, it goes on a little bit from there, but Emily, cutting to the quick here, Emily, we have somebody who's saying, and, and I, I don't remember this, maybe a market foolery or motley fool money, but it sounds like you were saying that companies should not make weakness in China an excuse because presumably you said because Starbucks doesn't have weakness in China. Is presumably that, that is what I said. And I, I do want to apologize, Graham. I agree. It's probably unfair to compare a $5 latte to $5,000 <laughs> teeth braces. Uh, but I will say this much, you know, slow down in China. I just kept hearing. And so I remember that day in particular. It's funny because, you know, he talks a little bit about Jason and how great he is with McCormick's, and then he names two companies that I've just uh, hammered on the show. So I apologize to those, the poor listeners who every single time I get on, I probably have find something to be frustrated about. But at the time, it was China. And I will say this, though. Slow down in China. Yes, China is slowing down, but China is not slow. And so I think the point that I was trying to get across is the fact that if you're showing really bad numbers in China, like a line did last quarter, it's not because China suddenly gone down the drain. And, and, and Graham does go on to talk a little bit about the Great Recession and how people s still, they didn't make big purchases like Align you know, products, uh -huh. but they did make small luxury purchases. Economic growth in China right now is still above 6%. Yeah, which is phenomenal because it's at like its lowest in 20 years. And it's 6%. Exactly. And in the U.S., I, I doubt anyone would say that we were in a recession over the last year, but we were about 2.5% for comparison's sake. So to say that anybody in China is feeling a dent on their net worth due to purchasing align retainers would probably be an overstatement, simply because China isn't anywhere near a recession right now. Yes, economic growth is not as strong as it was previously, but it's still projected to be about 5.5% 
over the next five years, hmm. which is substantial. So China is still growing is the point that I was trying to make. And a lot of that growth is still happening for people moving into the middle class, which should be aligned technologies number one demographic in China. So the fact that they were weak in that area says less to me about slowing Chinese economic growth like management seemed to make us want to mm. think and more about, hey, maybe their business strategies in China right now just aren't paying off because we did see people who are also targeting that middle class companies like Starbucks improving. Now, that is a good point that Graham makes and the fact that there's a lot of reasons why Starbucks would perform better than a company like Align. So I'm trying to figure this out then, Emily. Are you conceding Graham's point a little bit or are you digging your heels back in? I am. And I, I, I want to say that day I had just was tired <laughs> about hearing people hate on China. So I had to do a little bit of a Align hate myself. <laughs> I, I, I liked Graham's line at close. He said, if the economy is slowing down in China, maybe Starbucks isn't selling coffee at all, but a $5 cup of escape. Wrapped in warm goodness. Ooh, beautiful. It's really, it's a kind of a, it's a, not a beautiful question, but it's a beautiful thought. I'll say it that. Is. All right. Well, before we move on to the next time, we should mention briefly Align Technologies, uh, a company a lot of you probably know, because if you're a Rule Breakers member, you know it's an active Rule Breaker recommendation. It has been a significant winner for us over the longer term, but more recently has had weakness. But it's those Invisalign braces. So you see people with not the metallic braces that I had as a 13-year-old kid, but you often see adults these days with something lo that looks like, you know, those rubber see-through, what you see athletes wearing in a, in a football game, let's say, and it's that football time of year now. But that's the way a lot of teeth correction happens, and Invisalign is the, is the brand, and Align Technologies is the company behind that. Mm-hmm. Emily, did you have braces? I did have braces growing up. I had them for a very long time until eventually my parents decided it was a big scam and they took them off me. Now my my dentist is recommending actually that I get Invisalign. <laughs> is that right? Uh, yeah. And I, I looked at my teeth in the mirror and I thought, mm, maybe it's still a scam. I feel like my teeth look fine, but maybe <laughs> I, also I do feel need like Invisalign. Your teeth look fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. All right. Well, rule breaker mailbag item number four. Let's stay with the dragon. Of Asia, the world, it, China fancies itself a dragon. There's a whole history. It's not just the. It's the year of the dragon every year, in some senses, for the Chinese. I'm I'm nodding as if I know anything about that. I'm embarrassed to say that my four years in China at no point led me to discover why China is the Asian dragon. Yeah, well, I do remember a little bit of a talk from a tour guide. I think we were in the Forbidden City in Beijing just a few weeks ago, and I think there's a formative story about how. Not at the start of China, but somewhere, a key moment in history. Maybe one of our smart listeners will share back uh, why they adopted the dragon as emblematic of the Chinese. Anyway, let's stick with the dragon. And James Keithley, who wrote in RBI and David, several rule breaker recommendations are Chinese stocks, Baozun, Ichi, Baidu. And while I am very interested in buying stocks benefiting from the economic growth going on in China, which we just referenced, Emily. I'm hesitant, James goes on, in light of the fraud by Chinese companies using U.S. stock markets from 2008 to 2012. I can't see that there have been any meaningful reforms that would prevent Chinese companies from cooking the books. James continues, starting in 2008, Chinese companies were using a, quote, reverse merger to get access to U.S. equity markets and then falsifying accounting data to generate interest in the new companies. Google the phrase China hustle for more information. So, Emily, let's talk briefly about that, um, but more importantly or broadly about why we do have a bunch of Chinese stocks in Motley Fool Rule Breakers, and they've been some of our best long-term performers. That's true. And I do just want to note, China Hustle is on Netflix. I also saw it. So it's a good it's a good movie. Um, I definitely recommend it to any I listeners did not know out that. there. Yes, okay. I think it just came to Netflix. Okay. Um, I saw the big ad for it, and you know me. I had to click had to click. That's how Netflix gets you. But I, I digress. Um, no, it's a, it's a really good point. And it's something that we've touched on a little bit before about the fact that you're never really going to know your Chinese companies as well as you know your U.S. companies. But it's not because... And would you say, let me interrupt oh, briefly, yeah, would ahead. you say even if you're a Chinese investor, you're still not going to know your Chinese companies as well as you could know your U.S. companies? Yes and no. And I'll clarify. Um, American investors definitely won't simply because oftentimes they're not familiar with the product. Uh, you can be familiar with Starbucks here in the U.S. because you 
see it and drink it every day. But maybe you're not familiar with Luck and Coffee's business model because you don't run by it and, and grab it on your way to work in the morning. So there's a bit of ignorance in that regard that a Chinese investor would likely know, while mm-hmm. an American investor maybe Certainly. not so much. But when you look at the the accounting policies for foreign firms listed in the U.S., it's actually not as bad as China Hustle makes you think it is. Um, admittedly, there is a lot of fraud happening during that period. But all companies listed on U.S. exchanges, especially the major exchanges, these are your level two and level three American depository receipts. Um, they're required to file with the SEC. So if the SEC already has some oversight. They're required to have auditors. A lot of time, these auditors are big four companies. So your Deloitte's, but they're just in China. And so they're still your same firms. They're still registered auditors. They're still auditing according to to GAAP standards, but they're just listed in foreign countries. Um, So there's actually less auditing risk, in my opinion, nowadays than there was previously. The big risk to me is actually business level risk. If you see a lot of short seller reports come out for Chinese companies, they're not attacking their their auditors. They're actually attacking fraud on a business level, um, which is definitely possible with any foreign firm. China gets a bad rep for it simply because of its history, uh, but it's possible with any foreign firm. It's possible with any Chinese firm, and it's possible with any U.S. firm as well. And we've seen fraud happen in the United States. So there's always going to be, I think, in my opinion, an elevated risk for fraud with your Chinese companies. It just requires you to be extra diligent with your research. It's the, part of the reason why we we recommend don't recommend, you know, micro cap Chinese companies, um, the ones that we do recommend, we do tend to do a lot of diligence on to make sure they're not fraudulent companies before recommending them. And that's a particularly important point for James and anybody listening, is that when you're, especially when you're investing on foreign soil, especially if they don't have the same standards of accounting that we might take for granted as American investors, maybe tend to favor the large caps. Those companies you can kind of observe their businesses. I have to say, even though Baidu has been one of our better performers in the history of Motley Fool Rule Breakers, I still have not never really used Baidu myself, so I don't have that consumer relationship with it, but I can see others using Baidu. I know it's real. So I agree, those dodgy, really small companies, I can't really feel like I could trust them and get a lot of confidence around investing in them. And I'll just add in that we want these companies to be listed in the U.S. And it's not to say that we want any American investors or any investor choosing to invest in American listed companies to be exposed to fraud. But it is to say for a long time, the U.S. has been the place to list for companies. And so seeing Chinese companies, seeing Russian companies, seeing any foreign company wanting to come to the U.S. to list says a lot about the strength of the American system, the American financial markets, the propensity of Americans to actively invest. And the moment those companies decide that it's no longer lucrative for them to list in the U.S. and they choose to list somewhere else, say Atlassian, an Australian company choosing to list in the U.S. versus in Australia. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ticker symbol team, yeah, one of a, our better performers company. for rule breakers as well. Yeah. It's just these are the types of companies that you want to have access to. So you want these companies to come list in the U.S. And I agree that there's always going to be a heightened risk um, associated with any foreign company because they are reporting standards. While they still report to the SEC, they still have auditors. They're not as robust as American companies. I still want to have them as an option. So I will say, well, it's easy to watch China hustle and get really angry at China and get really angry at a lot of these companies. Just remember about the fact that we have access to companies and to opportunities that we've never had access to before. And it helps us root out these scams. It helps us root out the bad companies to get access to the great companies. I agree. Now, I need to let you go, Emily. I know you have something else. I I wish you wouldn't. And I hope you'll tell the yak story before you leave. But before you tell the yak story, if you'll tell the yak story, um, would you say the same thing in terms of being cautious since you're focused somewhat on the cannabis industry now with some mm. of your work and our service that supports that, would you say that you should tend to favor the large cap companies within that group as well? well it's so interesting you ask that because it's actually the not the case. Uh-huh. Uh, because almost as opposite as the China industry is right now, a lot of the companies that have gotten the most press 
have actually been some of the worst performers. And the reason why they, they're the largest companies is not because their performance has been so substantial as to justify those valuations, but because the media has taken on these companies and exposed them to a lot of retail investors. Wow. Um, internal controls for the cannabis industry is what I look for. So uh -huh. you want to look for companies that have robust internal controls. And it comes back to reporting requirements. These companies are not required to report on their internal controls. So you want to have faith that management has has is being diligent about running their business, has made statements about their own internal controls because you can't trust the auditors to do it for you. All right. Very well put, Emily. Okay, tell the yak story. Okay, this is it's still a hard thing to talk about, David. So I'll I'll do my best. And and, and truly, I think it is kind of hard. It was hard to hear it. So some rule breaker investing listeners might want to hit that like forward fifteen seconds, forward fifteen seconds, forward fifteen seconds again on your browser or how you watch or listen to this podcast because this is a little hard. Go. It is a little hard. I Speaking of China, I was in a country very close to China recently, Tajikistan, on a trip with my sister across the Pamir Highway. Um, and we were staying at homestays across the entire trip. It was really a wonderful once-in-a-lifetime experience. But things I did not account for along the trip was what I would eat at these homestays. I just would eat whatever they would cook for us. Mm -hmm. And we had a very, very generous family we stayed with uh, make a in their opinion, very nice dinner, which required them to kill a yak in front of me. Um, they dismembered it, drained it of its blood, cooked it up, and fed it to me. Um, and I am now vegetarian. <laughs> you really are. You describe yourself well, as temporarily. For, anyway. I was say for a whole for a whole almost two weeks now. I've been vegetarian, so we'll see how long it lasts. But whenever I I see meat, I I now picture the poor yak's pearly eyes as it you know had its stiff paws up as they took the. Uh, the guts out. It was really a, a rather gruesome experience. How large was the yak? I, cow sized. Mm -hmm. uh, it looked like a very hairy cow. And big horns? Big horns. And 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 stiff legs and pearly eyes. I understand. Have you ever read the George Orwell short piece Shooting an Elephant? I you know what? It sounds so familiar, and I'm sure at one point in my childhood I did. Well, take a look at it again. Mm -hmm. It might it might be inspiring or connect with some of that experience. Anyway, Emily, thank you briefly for sharing the yak story yeah. and why you are at least temporarily now vegetarian, maybe permanently. Maybe we'll permanently. I, I'm a big, bigger fan of Beyond Meat now than I than I have been before. <laughs> Rule breaker mailbag item number five. This one comes from Kyle Vegter. Might be Vegter. Hi, Kyle. You said, Dave, thanks for your cheerful and thoughtful presentation on your podcast each week. I really look forward to it, especially as it will many times take my attention away from the business of the market. Been a Motley Fool member for a few months followed for a few years, and really enjoy the education I've received thus far. And now I'm trying to pass that on to my children and anyone else who will listen. You write, Kyle, just wondered if you had any comments about the idea of buying stock, not just to make a buck, but for the ownership and especially for the realization that you are contributing to the world when you invest in a company that performs a necessary service for others. Full stop. It does go on from there, but I want you to know, Kyle, that that is not just something I've considered. That's been a watchword for me for years, and that is my mentality. I think most people at The Motley Fool would share that same thing. I never want to generalize and say everybody believes what I believe, but one of my watchwords has been make your portfolio reflect your best vision for our future. And in fact, our new venture cap fund, Motley Fool Ventures, has used that as kind of their tagline for what we do at Motley Fool Ventures, our VC fund. So yes, I believe that every company that you invest in, you are propping up. You put money into their stock, they could later issue new shares. You've helped them. Every time you or I bid up a stock, it's helping that company. And every time you bought that stock instead of this other one, well, that other one suffers because it didn't get your capital. Or in the businesses themselves, if you buy one product, then they're going to do better than the company whose product you did not buy instead. So everything is connected. What you pay for as a consumer, what you invest in as an investor is shaping our future. So ask yourself before you spend your dollars, or even more important, invest those dollars for the long term in a company. Ask yourself, do I, whoever I am, will say Kyle, in your case, do I, Kyle, believe that in so doing, if this company succeeds, the world will be better. And I believe that your dollars should be 100% aligned with yes answers to that question. So make your portfolio reflect your best vision for our future. Kyle, you go on to mention swing traders and day traders don't see the value in this. They're just playing the stock up and down, people following patterns on graphs. 
But we at The Fool are business-focused investors, and I would say we're also future-focused investors. And we ask, what's the future I want to live in? And we invest accordingly. And good news, we've beaten up on the markets really badly over a couple of decades by always having that mentality, which means you don't just invest toward a better world and help shape that better world, you profit. Your life is enriched when that better world happens. So the purpose of this company and what I do on this podcast is to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. And those three things are intimately connected. Now, Kyle, you closed your note by saying, speaking of not benefiting humanity, my son, who recently invested a small amount in Roku, was sitting in front of the TV flipping back and forth to the advertisements on Roku. He said that he figured the more ads he saw, the more money Roku would make. It was great to see him interested in the profitability of his company, and hopefully in the future he will think of even more creative and helpful ways to benefit the world. And thank you for sharing that story from your family. I love those kinds of stories, Kyle. And I remember I was in a Starbucks with a business acquaintance a few years ago, and I just like started picking up the place. And he's like, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm a shareholder, so I'm, a, I'm an owner of this too. And it made quite an impression on, on him. He came back to me a few years later and said, I still remember when you said and did that. To me, it, it was just kind of de rigueur. It was what you do. And I don't even think you have to own shares in Starbucks to feel like you can clean any place up. But it does count for a little bit more when you do feel like a part owner. So yeah, the more we get kids seeing the benefits of the products and services that enrich their lives and then awaken them to the fact that you could be a part owner of the company that makes that product or service through the stock market, uh, I think the better and better our world will get. And certainly, we at The Fool are trying to spread that far and wide. I love your Roku story. Thank you, Kyle. Rule Breaker Mailbag item number six. This one comes from Ravi Dewar, Spaceman Spiff. You list yourself that way in the email. Thanks for your question. Hi, I'm a recently converted Fool Stock Advisor member, Ravi says, and so far I'm having the best of this service. I have been investing on my own in the past in low-cost index funds across U.S., international, emerging markets, REITs, and bonds. The returns I've had from index investing have been, Ravi writes, wait for it, he writes, average, no wonder, and was looking to invest in some growth stocks. The question I have is, and here it comes, how do I go around limiting my losses? In the past, I've used stop losses at the 5 to 8% level, but I've been whipsawed a lot. I like to believe that as long as the company hasn't changed fundamentally, I should hold on to it. However, I don't want to hold a position with a 20% loss in the hope that it will come back up. And so far, I haven't seen any sell recommendation from The Motley Fool either. I'm not sure if The Fool sends out sell recommendations. This is a newer member I think an earlier mailbag item is already speaking to this, but let me just kind of call it right there. It goes on from there, but that's the key question. So, Ravi, I just want to assert that not only do we tend not to sell, but especially we tend not to use stop losses. Now, for anybody who's new to what stop losses are, you or I as an investor, if we buy a stock, let's say we buy some Roku, it's possible to set our account, to set that position on our E-Trade account or our Ameritrade account, and we could set that position so that at a certain price, our broker would automatically sell that stock for us. So, for example, let's say you buy a stock at 25 and it's gone up to 35 and you decide, you know what? I really don't ever want to lose money now that I'm up. So, you decide to put it in what's called a stop loss order at 25. So, you paid 25. It's done great. It's up 10 bucks a share. That's about 40%. It's gone up 40% and you're like, I don't ever want to lose. And so you put in a stop loss order. And then unfortunately, the company has bad earnings and maybe it's a more volatile company like Roku can be. And the stock drops to 24 very temporarily. All of a sudden, your broker will have automatically sold it because you set a stop loss order. We don't like those. We do not use them. I know some of our members will and some people swear by them, but we don't like to give brokers or market whipsawing random control of the positions that we've intended to hold for long periods of time. So we are the opposite of people like William O'Neill of Investors Business Daily fame, who said things like, never lose more than 8% on a stock, so automatically sell anything if it's down. That way, you'll never have big losses. There's a whole loss aversion that O'Neill and his ilk have, and that you might be suffering from a little bit here, Ravi, although you do mention in your note 
quote, I like to believe that as long as the company has not changed fundamentally, I should hold on to it, end quote, and we agree. So I hope you know, we don't like stop losses. We don't use them. We're okay with losing. The biggest loss you could ever have as an investor, and that I've ever had, is when you sell a great winner too early. And especially, it can be frustrating if a stop loss automated sell occurs and kicks you out of that, what could have been a really great position. And rule break. Oh my gosh, before we go to rule breaker mailbag item number seven, is this Robert Brokamp of Motley Fool Answers and Rule Your Retirement fame? I believe it is. That is amazing, Robert. <laughs> I don't know how you just suddenly showed up here, but before we go through a few mailbag items to close this show, Thank you for 20 outstanding years of The Motley Fool. Thank you, David, for creating such a wonderful company to work for. It really has been extraordinary. Uh, 20 years ago this week, Robert, you came to The Motley Fool. Um, I know your story pretty well because I've got to know you a little bit over the 20 years. But would you like to say anything about where you came from and then where you are now? And by the way, I haven't heard answers yet this week. So for all I know, you've already spoken to this. But if even if you did, say a little on this show, too. All right. So very quickly, I thought I was going to be a priest. So I started off at a seminary and then I thought I'd be a doctor. So I became English pre-med. Uh, but then I wanted to teach school for a little bit before I went to med school. So I was an English and religion teacher for five years. And then in that process, I decided I didn't want to be a doctor or a priest, but I also wasn't making much money. So I thought I need to learn more about how to master my money. That's when I discovered you and The Motley Fool. I became a financial advisor for a couple of years. It was a good experience, led a lot of good people in that industry, believe it or not, but still I didn't like wearing a suit every day and cold calling people about municipal bonds. And this is somewhere now in the mid-90s? Yep, 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 yep. And so I stayed focusing, kept reading about The Motley Fool, saw that they were looking for an editor back in 99. I thought, oh, hey, maybe this is my shot. And believe it or not, you guys hired me. I think I remember meeting you at a book signing. Yes. Is that accurate? Yes. And that was even like two years before I joined The Fool. And I still have the book with right. your, your autograph awesome. and Tom's. Right nearby, wasn't yep. it? Yeah. Yes. Books a Million, which is now uh, yep. CVS. Was that something. Potomac Yards? Was the, no, no. Books no. A, it, it was, was right here in Old Town. Right here, right on Pitt Alexandria, Street. Virginia. Awesome. Robert, yeah. thank you so much for 20 outstanding years. And um, we can't talk too much about them. I hope you'll say something on Motley Fool Answers if you haven't already. But in particular, Robert has distinguished himself as the greatest Halloween costume dresser <laughs> I'm not just going to say that I know, though he is, maybe living today. And I, I would challenge anybody who thinks they may have outdone Robert. He would never do this himself. He's not calling anybody out. I'm calling you out, though. If you can see the last 20 years of Robert's, they've all been photographed, appearances at Full HQ in just give a couple examples of your of your uh, get-ups. Let's see. Probably. So, Susie Orman, member of the Blue Man Group. The one <laughs> that I was in the Washington Post for when I was Senator Larry Craig, who was famously arrested in a bathroom stall in Minneapolis airport. Um, you know, stuff like that. It's it's <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, carbonite, you look just like Han yes, Solo, Han Solo, Frozen Carbonite. carbonite. I had the Carbonite with me. Dr. Yes, Evil. Yep, shaved my head for that one. I had my then one-year-old son as many me. Unbelievable. So, um, and that just reminds me to say, and then we'll actually get back to the mailbag, that <laughs> so much of the pleasure of working together isn't just reaching, and I think you've reached, Robert, millions of people with the work that you've done, but it's actually just the fun that we have with each other. And I, I truly don't, I challenge, this This is a call-out, I challenge any other Motley Fool employee to bring more fun to this office over the next 20 years than Robert has over the past 20. I think you're a fool's fool and you're far more foolish than either of the Gardner brothers. So thank you very <laughs> much. True at all, but thank you. Truly. Okay, so from the sublime, I'm not going to say to the ridiculous, although number seven hits hard. Yeah. And so we should go there for a sec. So I'm not going to give the full name, but this comes from Jill. And Jill writes, Hi, Motley Fool. I realize you probably aren't the person to read this email, but I'm hoping that the person who does will forward this to you. Well, no, you did reach me, Jill. So here we go. I'm a self-funded retiree. Need I say more? No options left. So started trading with no experience. I have learned some strategies of discipline along the way, but too late for the dead stocks that are doing absolutely nothing or at least 25% down. I watched your story on repairing broken stocks. I'm not quite sure what that was, but we published a lot at fool.com. I hope it was a good one. But she said, I'm too scared to go any further as I don't understand the concept and don't know anyone that I trust to ask. I haven't told my husband of the position I have put us in. I've managed to keep us going on just a trade here and there, but I need help. I've been too scared to go to anyone for fear of having it all taken away, but I'm doing a good job of that myself. 
Signed, Bad Learner Driver. Well, there are a number of thoughts that probably jump yes. to mind. Robert, what's top of mind for you as you read that? So, David, I don't know if you know this, but over the last few years, I earned a graduate certificate in financial therapy from Kansas State. I did not know that. Um, so there actually are professionals out there who help people handle the emotional aspects of money as well as the relational aspects. And I'm going to bring this up because she hasn't told her husband. I think she should, but mm. she might want some professional help in terms of managing that. So you can go to the Financial Therapy Association website, look for someone in your area, and they have skilled in helping couples work out financial difficulties. Mm. And you talk about your crucial conversations. Yes, absolutely. So that's number one. Number two, uh, what concerns me is whether they have enough to be retired. And for that, I recommend you get some professional help, someone who can look at what you're doing and say, yes, you're fine. Or maybe you need to consider going back to work, even if on a part-time sure. basis. Sure. Now, I, you know, I, I totally hear you there. One of my impressions about financial planning advice, Robert, and disabuse me of this illusion is it seems a lot of the industry that gives some of this kind of advice, you have to have a big account to get somebody to sit down there and have that talk with you. But are you saying that for Jill or anybody in a similar situation, there is somebody that cheaply anyway could help give them advice about whether they have enough? Yes. Yeah, so obviously she has a relationship with some sort of brokerage to begin with. And most of the big brokerages offer some sort of financial planning advice. Fidelity, Schwab, Vanguard, all those folks. It might cost extra or it might not. It might, not. It might come as part of the account. So mm. I would start there. Also, you can get fee-only financial planners who charge by the hour or by the project. So they're not concerned with whether you have enough money. Uh, you're just paying for their services. And we actually like that because the advice they're giving, they have no incentive to give you bad, conflicted advice because they're not trying to sell you anything other than their time. We do like that. Yes. And it will cost you, you know, probably over $1,000, maybe upwards of almost $3,000. But to have that good, solid expert opinion on what you can do to turn this situation around, I think it's going to be worth it. And I guess I'll just add, and then let's keep moving. But I, I'll add that um, trading, I don't think, is ever the answer. Um, it, it truly is just treating the stock market in a way that it wasn't designed, I don't think, to, to work. Um, one could blithely say something like, you might as well just go put it all down on black or this kind of a thing, because it is turning investing into gambling if you're taking an approach to, in the short term, try to get back to even or this kind of a thing. And of course, when you think about gambling, you think about gambling addictions, there are a lot of phobias and problems mentally about money. And it recurs sometimes in people who trade a lot. Right. So I hope, I think, Jill, that if you listen, if you heard us, you seek help, and then you re-educate a little bit yourself thinking about how money grows dependably, that'll help you and your husband and your family. Um, it's, it's not an overnight win. And that's, that's part of it. And the stock market might have a bad year this year. And so you have to be willing to lose too. But it does sound like maybe one or both of them, if they are retired, would want to consider at least some part-time work. And I guess the good news is we're all living longer these days. Right. And so we can keep working longer than ever before. And I think society will continue to offer more opportunities for more forms of elderly work, ways to add value back and get paid for it. I believe that. And so I, I sure hope, Jill, that you, you've heard us and that things will get better. So thank you for sharing. Well, thank you for that, Robert. Will you stay with me for a couple more? I would love to. All right, great. Here comes number eight. This is from AVM. We, you, we, last name spelled U Y. So I can't, I don't know for sure how to pronounce that, but I took my best shot there, AV. Thank you. You said full subscriber since 2016. How do I raise cash in a traditional IRA? Do I sell a little bit of each of the stocks and maybe any funds that I have in there? Or the reason he's asking is because he's raising cash, barely has enough in his investment fund. Sounds pretty fully invested. So how does, Robert Brokamp, how does one raise cash in a situation where there isn't a lot coming in or sitting there, but you want to, at least in this case, in an IRA, raise some? Well, the good thing about an IRA is if you're going to do any selling, you don't have to worry about the tax consequences. Um, but I would actually start with looking at what you're doing with your dividends. Um, for most funds, the default is you reinvest the, the dividends as well as okay. the capital gains yep. distributions that come from funds at the end of the year. And many people are doing that with their stocks and bond funds and all that stuff. So instead, I would turn all that off and just let it accumulate in cash. That's the first thing I would do. And then the second thing I would do is just to look at your overall allocation 
chances are in any given year and certainly over a, a multiple year period, some investments are going to do very well. Some are not going to do so, some well. Some people love to let their winners run. I know, David, you're a big fan of that. Wait, some people do? <laughs> some people do. <laughs> it's but, true. This is more my bent, but I know that there are other approaches as well. Right. And it really depends on your risk tolerance and how close you are, I would say, to retirement. If you're young, you can let your portfolio be dominated by a handful of stocks. But if you're getting closer to retirement, if you have a stock that has become 30, 40, 50 percent of your That's account, a big number. you might want to that might be a place to look for. Uh -huh. um, and then the other, you mentioned funds, and I think it's very important to evaluate your funds. If your fund has not beat its benchmark or its category over the last three to five years, that probably means you have a dud fund, and that might be a good place to trim some of that holding as well. Robert, um, do, you, do you draw a distinction between like the stocks you're looking at in your IRA and the funds? Do you class them differently or group them together in your mind? Or you do, do you use the same measuring stick and just apply it to every single thing that has a ticker in your IRA? I, I, I think of them differently. Like When I evaluate my funds, I go straight to Morningstar and I compare the fund to its category, right? So let's say it's a large cap value fund. If it is beating the majority of large cap value funds over the last three, five, 10 years, I'm happy with it. But if it's not, then I'm going to reconsider whether I should have that fund or not. Stocks are a totally different thing. Do I believe in the business? Do mm -hmm. I do? Do I believe in the executives? Do I believe in in um, its future? You and I have talked about. Does it represent the kind of world we want to live in? Is this a company that I believe in? Is it making the world a better place? As you were saying just a little while ago, invest in companies that create the world that you want to live in. Yeah, very well put. That sounds familiar. All right. And mailbag <laughs> item number nine, Robert. This is from Steve in Lakeland, Florida. He said, David, I have a question about your recommendation regarding taking initial positions in stocks. So the Rule Breakers site, Steve writes, recommends taking 2% of your portfolio's overall value and putting it into a stock. In other words, think of it this way, maybe like 50 stocks, 2% each. Steve goes on. So if I have, as an example... 50% of my overall portfolio in a 401k and therefore in mutual funds and the remaining 50% in a discount stock brokerage, then just to be clear, Steve asks, should I consider 2% of the value of both accounts or just my stock account when factoring in the size of my initial stock position? Robert, before we go to your answer, Steve says, thanks for all you do. I'm up over 60% year-to-date wow. with my Foolish Picks in my IRA this year. Given that the market's up somewhere around 10% or so this year, you are crushing the market. And Amazing. You're having a, a heck of a great year. So yeah. congratulations there. Robert, thoughts here? So uh, as I may have mentioned on previous shows, I tend to be more along the lines of conservative diversification, keeping holdings to a smaller level. So I would say 2% of the stock account, not 2% of your entire portfolio. I'll just add one other thing, and that is, it would sort of depend on how long Steve's been investing. And I've had experiences where people have been investing in funds their whole lives. They dip their toe into the stock market with individual stocks. Those individual stocks don't turn out so well, and it turns them off to investing in individual stocks. So if he's just getting started, obviously being 60% up year to date, he's already turned on to it. Um, so he's probably not in that case. But for other people, if you're new to individual stocks, I would say take it a little slower and don't be too discouraged if your stock doesn't do so well out of the gate or it treads water. I'm an owner of Starbucks. And from 2015 to about the end of 2018, it went nowhere. In fact, it lost money. Mm. This year, it's up 50%. There so I'm go. pretty happy. Got to be patient. Love it. So if you put... If you, so you have 50% of your money, as he said, in funds in a 401k. So then you're left with 50% of your money. And then the real question to me actually comes down, Steve, how many stocks do you want to own? Do you want to own 25 stocks? In that case, you might want to put 2% of each of that 50 left in each of those stocks. Or do you want to own 50 stocks, in which case it'll be 1% in each following along with Robert? And that sounded like perfectly good advice to me, Robert. I also like diversification, I guess where maybe sometimes the rule breaker in me differs with a more traditional advice bent is I love to let's go to the Kentucky Derby. This is my 2019 analogy I've been rocking. So let's see if I can get this going. So it's the Kentucky Derby, right? There are like 20 horses. There are so many horses each year in the first of the Triple Crown races here in the US. There are so many horses that you sometimes can get like 19A and 19B, two different horses with two different colored jockeys, but it's the same bet, right? There are a lot of horses. And so just before the bell rings, 
I would say put down even money in every one of those 20 horses, right? Okay. I, I'm going to try to ignore the odds. One of those horses is 3-2. to two, Another was 59-1. to one. By the way, the incredible long shot won the Kentucky Derby this year, which was a fun sideline. But I love that you just put the same amount in every one of those horses, and I assume you would too, Robert. right? Yeah, right. it makes sense to us. And, and that's what we're saying to you, Steve. But where I differ a little bit might be that if one of those horses gets way ahead, Here's the beauty of the stock market. You can't do this at the Kentucky Derby. You can put more money down on that horse to win three quarters of the way through the race or through the first four furlongs or whatever it is. You can be act- you should be actively asking who's winning. And typically, you should be adding money to those. Now, of course, within the understanding that you don't want to be totally overbalanced in any one thing. So I think the stock market is like a broken Kentucky Derby, and you should be taking <laughs> advantage of that as much as possible. Steve, but but I really do like the even amounts and everything at the start. But then things immediately with the ring, with the what's that sound that kicks off the Kentucky Derby, Rick Engdahl? As soon as that happens, those horses are now no longer the same, and there's an imbalance. And you should see what's winning and stick. What do winners do, Robert? They just keep winning. They win. Robert, before I let you go, thank you again for all you've done. At, for 20 years and counting here at The Motley Fool. And I wonder if you, I know you're not comfortable often doing this, but how about a, just a little bit of self-promotion, maybe with a little bit of storytelling, because your work with our Rule Your Retirement Service has been going on for... More than 15 years. Could you briefly remind us, give us a link or an idea about how to find Rule Your Retirement for anybody who doesn't have it that might appreciate hearing from you and the team and learning. And if there's any kind of story of how it all came about. I always enjoy origin stories, superhero origin stories too. Well, so it was back in 2004 and a group of us actually designed the service without knowing who was going to run it. Um, and we just thought, you know, that investing in stocks is a very important part of your financial su- success, but there's so many other things that people need to know how to maximize your retirement account, how to reduce your taxes, when to take social security, all kinds so of aspects, many things. estate planning. So we thought we, get, we should create a full service that addresses all these other things. So we designed it and then said, okay, who's going to run it? And I actually had to apply for the job. And there were outside people who applied for the job. But for some reason, y'all decided that I should be the guy I in charge. I think we made a pretty good call there. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and it, it does have model portfolios based on ETFs. So a little bit of stocks and bonds, a little bit of international. So it's a little more diversified, a little maybe a little more conservative than a lot of our other services. But I think it's a nice compliment to any of our other stock picking services. It really is. And I'm glad you mentioned that because, of course, this this podcast, every single week, we're talking about breaking the rules. We often talk about investing, but not all the time. But we're very focused on what stock or what company is going to win and why and what works in life. And yet that sometimes ignores the overall context. And so we find it in mailbag. People ask, well, I hear you there, but I have this. Here's my situation. And so it's that whole life context or the whole financial life context that sits outside of your individual stock picking that you, Motley Fool Answers, your podcast that you and Allison Southwick have done for years now. And of course, Rule Your Retirement, which is a service appreciated by many people, rule breakers and otherwise, for a long time here at Fool.com. I agree. Good. <laughs> You're right. I don't like self-promotion, but thank you for saying all that. <laughs> all right. I'm certainly enticed. I'm in. Robert, where do I go to find Rule Your Retirement on the internets? Go to ryr.fool.com. All right. And closing it all out, our finale this week, Rule Breaker Mailbag Item, whoa, number 10. This one comes from Christoph Hendricks at Christoph Hendry one Thank you for this note, Christoph. As a real stockaholic, you wrote, I always want you to talk about stocks. So last year, I thought I wouldn't like the Authors in August series because I've listened to every single episode up to then. I was willing to give it a try, though. The result? I really loved it. I ended up reading Seth Godin's Purple Cow, Priya Parker's The Art of Gathering, and Mark Penn's Micro Trends Squared, and I loved them all. I wouldn't have read them without you, so thanks. This year, despite my good experience, I didn't look forward to authors in August, and again, the conversations were so good that they broadened my thinking. I've already bought Chris McDougall's Born to Run and may buy Natural Born Heroes 2. Christoph closes out The Purpose of the Motley Fool is to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. 
while you make me richer 11 months out of 12, you make me poorer in August because I buy so many of the books that are discussed. But it sure does make me smarter and happier. Thanks and fool on. Well, thank you, Christoph. I really appreciate that note. It's a great one to close out on and fool on yourself, good sir. All right. Well, that was our special first ever Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag Weekend Extra. I'm excited to tell you that coming up this coming week in our normal slot for Rule Breaker Investing, it's my next five-stock sampler. And I'll give you the title ahead of time. Since you took extra time out to listen in and join with me this weekend, I'm going to tell you about all the people who blew this mailbag off and didn't join in don't yet know. It's going to be five stocks with a tailwind blow. Coming up this Wednesday on Rule Breaker Investing. Have a great weekend. Full on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.